good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us online for church this morning. And I'd like to invite you to check out our church website, SalemHeightsChurch.org, to learn more about who we are and what we have going on at this time of the year. Uh, One of the things you'll notice on our website is that we do have service times here at the church on Sundays at 9 and 11, where we're coming together in socially distanced gatherings to watch the sermon together, to worship, and to fellowship together. So if you'd like to join us, you can just let us know that you're coming, and we'll make sure to have a space for you. Well, let's turn our attention now to worship as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Salem Hiders and guests. We welcome you here today. We're so glad that you're joining us for worship. We want to remind you that our God is a good God and a faithful God, and he's worthy to be praised. And so we're going to ask you to worship with us now. If you're here in the auditorium, we want you to be free to worship as you would uh, as if this is a regular service and people are in front of you. And so we invite you to do that now as well. separate your steadfast love who can escape your faithfulness an endless sea and so full of grace and mercy and we sing God is so the past no more.
everything Lay it all down For the sake of you, my King Giving you my dreams I'm laying down my rights I'm giving up my pride For the promise of new life And I surrender It's all to you Father, we do surrender all to you today. We know that that's what you ask of us, is to give all of ourselves to you. We recognize that we cannot be used by you unless we do this. So we pray that you would help us to lay everything down at your feet, even today, and follow you wholeheartedly. God, we know that we are going to be happiest ourselves if we're there because we know that we'll be within your will. So God, I would pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that you would encourage us from your word today. Help us to be ready to go out and meet a world that needs you even this week. But we pray that you'd use today as encouragement for that. We're so thankful for your word and what it provides in our lives. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, 
Good morning, Salem Heights. I pray that uh, you've been deeply encouraged by our time in worship. We're going to be once again in Acts chapter 14, and we're in a series we're calling Christianity on the Grow. This particular message today uh, is entitled, Three Truths and a Lie. And I can remember teaching through Acts 13 and 14 for the very first time uh, as a group, tying those two passages together in a town called Salama down in Guatemala. We as a church had been supporting uh, kids from Compassion International. We had uh, uh, signed up uh, over 100 children that were from our church were in this same village where we were going to in Salama. We're going down there to be able to visit them and just wanted to encourage some of the pastors. And they were asking, what is the reason for our arrival? Why is it that our church was endeavoring to start a missions program and come down there and participate with them? In fact, one of the concerns that they had was whether or not this would be a one and done trip. Are you just coming now uh, to make a splash and then you'll go someplace else in the future? And we were trying to let them know that no, our heart was to be able to return. Acts 13 and 14 develop for us a picture of what it means to be on mission. But in this passage right here, we see Paul having a heart to return to those hard places to continue to share the gospel. These were the scriptures that we, ch we shared with those pastors in that country that still are our friends today. And these are still passages of scripture that encourage my heart. And I pray that they'll challenge you as we read them. Acts chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 8. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and he began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gate because he intended with the crowds to offer a sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd, shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you, and we are proclaiming the good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all of the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they had won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders from every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now this is a amazing story that is happening here. We see a couple of miracles. One, a man is healed. Somebody who had never walked. We're reminded of gospel stories when we hear that. And then Paul is stoned and he gets up 
from outside the city gates, walks back into the gate and continues his missionary journey. We also see an amazing misunderstanding that happened. What's very intriguing in that area of Lyconium, there actually was a story that the Greeks knew well throughout all of their area. There's actually a story that had been told by some of those people that were at the temple of Zeus, that Zeus and Hermes had at one point come into a town disguised as commoners. The story goes that they came from home to home and were rejected and turned away as if they were unimportant. But finally, they came to the home of some small couple uh, that had very little. They had almost nothing to offer, but they asked the two gods that were in disguise as just regular humans, asked them into their home, and they gave them their last little bit of food, and they were very helpful to them. And they made that place, the gods made that place a great temple, a place that was central in uh, Lyconium. And then all the rest of the people in the city endured a plague. There was great concern that was taught from this, that you should not turn away those people in case you would be turning away the gods. Well, now, all of a sudden, here are these two people that do not look outstanding, Paul and Barnabas arrive in their town. One is speaking these great things about God, but they just look like commoners until all of a sudden something significant happens. A man is healed in their presence. They thought the story was being played out once again, and their misunderstanding is the central theme to this story. I want you to see in this story three truths and a lie. And the first truth is this, miracles are not a replacement for message. Notice in here that this man gets healed. Paul says in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. And the crowd saw what Paul had done. They shouted saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They instantly make an assumption. Without the message that would later come from Paul and Barnabas, they did not know the intention of the miracle. They didn't know what it meant. Knowing the intention actually shapes the heart. A short while ago, Paul Harvey actually shared the story about a man that had uh, been working hard in his community. He was well known in the community. He gave a lot in the community. And he had a favorite pickup truck, a 1975 Chevy pickup truck that he would drive everywhere, and many of the families knew it. One day, he had pulled into a parking spot that was consistently his at the mall, and this favorite 1975 Chevy pickup truck was stolen. It actually made the news. Many people were frustrated that this guy, a pillar in the community, would have his favorite truck stolen. Well, months later, the news once again gave a report on this man and his pickup truck, only an amazing thing had happened. The truck showed back up in the exact same parking spot at that mall. Now just imagine, what, what does that mean? To have it show up in the exact same place, his keys still worked, he was able to go back out and turn the key on his very own pickup truck. It was right there, the same place where he had lost it. Only there was a difference to the truck. It had been sanded, it had been painted, it had been completely restored. The person that had stolen his truck left a note for him with all of the upgrades that had been made. The engine had been overhauled, the uh, uh, instruments had been redone, and he actually had a little lecture in there for him saying, make sure that you take good care of your pickup truck. It went from a horrifying story to a heartwarming story with one small message. This is why I stole your truck. The intention of it became evident through a message that was left for that man months later. When we hear the message, we understand the intention. The message that they had for these people was this. God actually intended for you to see this miracle and understand that the God of the universe cares about you, 
not Zeus and Hermes, not some other false gods, but the God of the universe, the same one that has been giving you rain for your crops, that has been giving you warmth in your home, now wants you to know the Savior of the world. And they gave them the message that was supposed to encourage them, to tell them the truth, to speak to them of God's love. I want you to know that many have remained lost after seeing a clear sign. Matt and I, Pastor Matt and I, quite often would go up to Marion Lake and uh, a few years ago, we'd made this repetitive trip and we were going by a section on the path into Marion Lake. It's uh, a couple of miles back into the place where we like to fish. And there's a Y, a junction in the, the path there. And up on the top of this tree, there's actually two arrows. One points to the left that says Marion Lake, and the other one says some random trailhead that'll take you way off into the wilderness. There's a clear trail marker on your way up to the lake. But many people have passed there and just stayed right. Without noticing the sign that was left for them, they end up wandering off into the wilderness, some of them even all night long, not discovering their mistake until it's too late. How do you get up to Marion Lake? The signs are clearly there, but many people miss them. Even in uh, the presence of a clear sign, you can make a mistake. You can stay lost. I, I want you to also notice that the message matters. Paul and Barnabas say, why are you doing these things? We are people just like you. Not, hey, we are special people, special emissaries. We have special powers given to us by God. Nothing to declare their praise. But they say, we are people just like you. We have good news that you can turn from these worthless things to the God who made the heavens and the earth. The content of the message was important. There's nothing special about us. There is everything wondrous about him. And he sent us to tell you of his love. That message was clear. The gospel was the message. We can get the message wrong and it can lead to quite a mess. A short while ago, there was a story of a pastor who had actually put an advertisement in a newspaper. He wanted to sell his color TV. Only the ad person at the newspaper had gotten the ad wrong all week long. On Monday, it says, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV for sale. Telephone 1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him cheap. Tuesday. We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV for sale. Cheap. Telephone 1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. Wednesday. The Reverend A.J. Jones informs us he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV for sale, cheap. Telephone 1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. <laughs> Thursday. Please take notice that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no color TV set for sale. I have smashed it. Don't call 1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Friday. Wanted. A housekeeper. Usual housekeeping duties, good pay, and instead of writing live-in, they wrote love-in. Reverend A.J. Jones. Telephone 1313. At the bottom, the newspaper wrote this, mistakes were made. The wrong message cannot just mess up the moment, it can mess up a reputation. In this passage right here, we actually see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas 
working very hard. God had actually put on display his power, his love of an individual, but also his love for a people. Disciples began to flow out of this message. But to get the message wrong in that moment, if they had taken that moment to make themselves look great, if they had taken that moment and twisted it at all, the power of that message would have been missed. It's not about a miracle. Miracles are not a replacement for the message. The message is central, and we must keep the gospel central. But the second truth we see here is that praise is fickle. They go from at one time shouting out that the gods have come down to us in verse 11. The apostles are wrangling with them back and forth. And it says that even then, even though they said these things, verse 14, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. In verse 19 it says, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium where they won over the crowds and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. One day, he's considered one of the gods. One day, they want to sacrifice to him. One day, they're closing the city gates and they're having celebrations at his arrival. The next day, they're stoning him and dragging him outside the city for dead. That is two completely different experiences for the very same man. Profound ministry is often profoundly misunderstood. There's a man in Italy, Enzo Boschke, who a short while ago actually rose to prominence because of his scientific ability. He was a leader in volcanic and seismic research. In fact, he was such a great scientist that he took a small group of scientists there in Italy, and and they were not well known. They were not men of reputation. They didn't have very good equipment. And through his scientific ability, through his relationships, through his communication effort, he actually created a foundation that had not just national recognition in Italy, but worldwide recognition. He was such a profound scientist that he won awards and he was called out to the national public. They gave him awards. They gave him honors. They asked him to give a paper on the scientific possibilities behind volcanic research and the concern about seismic activities. Would they have an earthquake in Italy? He had actually said because of the location of Italy, where it was that he was actually teaching, that there was a very small chance of seismic activity. Just a short while after he gave his research to the people, in 2009, there was a horrific earthquake. 309 people died. This man that had been revered by the entire community actually was put on trial by the nation. The government took him to task and said that it was his fault that 309 people had died because he did not tell them in advance that an earthquake was coming. He was later let off the hook. They, they eventually pardoned him of all of those charges because the rest of the scientific community said that their hopes for him were too high. It is impossible to tell the future. It is impossible to know what is going to happen as they had expected. He had gone from the highest highs of all of these awards to the lowest lows, actually being charged by his own community for falsehood. He was the same man, same scientific knowledge. It had turned just like that. What happened to Enzo quite often happens to those who are doing ministry in great ways all around the world. We've seen it not just in other places, but even in our own city. There can be a moment where you have great success or you're ministering to those that are broken or you see breakthroughs that are happening moment after moment. And that is exciting to those people who are being healed. It is exciting to those people who are being helped. It's exciting to a church community. But all of a sudden, one little word comes, one inference, one thought from the outside, what Scripture calls a satanic attack. One of these attacks comes, and the entire reputation changes. They're still doing the same thing. They still have the same message, but all the momentum goes in the direction of attack rather than blessing. Praise is fickle. 
Paul and Barnabas don't continue their ministry. They didn't go on this mission trip for praise. They went with a purpose to share the gospel. And whether the praise was high or whether the attacks were heavy, they stayed faithful to that. Not going based on praise, but going based on their purpose. There's a third truth, though, that we see in this passage. And that is that discipleship inspires relationship. If you see in this passage the response of Paul and Barnabas, it says that after the disciples had gathered around him, now it wasn't just people who had come to Christ, it wasn't converts, that's not the term that they're using, it's not raised hands, it's changed hearts. So a group of disciples, that means people who had been learning and sitting at the feet of Paul and Barnabas, learning about Jesus. After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. And the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. After they had preached the gospel in that town, they made many disciples and they returned. And I would have you underline it on your own time. Just notice the return, the locations where they went to. They returned to Lystra. They went to Iconium and to Antioch. They went back to the very places where they were attacked. They went back to those same towns where not only they were attacked, but they knew that it would go hard with those disciples. So what message did they have for them? It says they were strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, we encountered hardship here. You will encounter hardship here, but the kingdom of God is real. And it will not fail. If you were going to make an equation for discipleship, it might look like this. Discipleship equals personal time with personal ties and personal truth squared times two. You're coming and going, and you have all those ingredients in the mix. Time, personal ties, and truth. Paul is returning back through there, encouraging them with the same word. And notice he doesn't say, hey, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to work out. He says, no, hardships are consistent with the story. The real question that we have to ask ourselves is, why would Paul subject himself to going back to Lystra and Iconium, to Antioch? What was inspiring him? Is it just that he had a can-do spirit? Was it just because he was an elevated Christian and he understood better than us what, what it was that had to be done? Did he just have more strength than the rest of us? Because when I think about the kind of hardship that he was facing, it overwhelms me to think about going back into a place where I was almost killed, beaten, turned away, where I had to be dragged out of the city as dead and then I had to be pulled out of the city a second time because of a, a love for them. I cannot imagine Paul's heart. But sometimes when we read these passages, we forget what is going on in the heart of Paul. Remember when he got saved, he at one time had a mission, and his mission was to destroy the church. But when he got knocked on his back and he began to focus on the Savior, his heart changed. And instead of having the heart of a man, he now had the heart of the Father. I've chosen a, a video this week to just kind of help us remember what it means to have a father's heart in search of a child.
Deki, Deki. I know what you are thinking. I'm here for you, okay? I'm not going anywhere. Me and you. Okay? Okay. Go to school. Safe. Everyone's gone. No one came out of there alive. Come on. It's not safe. Let's go. I must find my son. Nikki! Nikki! As we think about that video and we think about the joy of a father and son being reunited, imagine now what it is that was driving Paul as he goes back into that city. It wasn't a death wish. It wasn't being daring. It was finally loving other people the way the father loves a son. His heart was aching to see them whole no matter what it cost him personally. Discipleship inspires relationship. Those are the three truths, but now I wanna share with you the lie. There's a lie that has been told throughout the centuries whenever Christianity is proclaimed. And that lie that gets told, and it's snuck in the side door, or it's whispered 
sometimes even in our culture it is preached. But that lie is this. True faith is trouble-free. How is it that we hear that lie? Sometimes you might hear, well, uh, if I'm having trouble, you might be even begin to ask your own self, why is this trouble here? Is it because God is frustrated with me? Is it because I have faltered in my faith? Is it because I'm not actually saved? Why do we have those questions that will drift through our mind? Why do we hear people saying that? Because we have bought the lie that true faith will lead to a life that is trouble-free. That is not what has ever been taught. In fact, here is a missionary journey, the first missionary journey sent out by the church at Antioch. And they send these two men out. They experience hardship, and then they preach in their discipleship that through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of God. Yes, God is making all things new. Yes, there is a day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, but that day is not today. Hardship, the grind, is actually a part of the Christian life. I can't imagine, but I read this last week about a man named Riza Karkin. He actually had come to Christ in Iran where it's illegal to change from the Muslim faith to the Christian faith. He was on a list of people who were going to be killed because they had become Christian, and he made his way to the UK. But as he was coming in and he was seeking asylum, he told them that he was going to be killed for his faith if he went back to Iran. He asked him, will you please accept me into your land? Will you allow me to come in to the United Kingdom? He was told that in order to prove that he was actually a Christian, he would have to pass a test. 150 questions were given to him about Scripture, 150 questions about the Bible to prove that he actually was a Christian and not somebody that was just trying to sneak in, seeking asylum, but then desiring to do harm. Now I ask you, would you be concerned if somebody said, you, you tell me you're a Christian? I'm going to give you 150 random questions about the Bible to prove whether or not you actually believe. How many in the room today actually believe they could pass a 150-question test? Here this man was given a 150-question test, and when it came to what is the name in English of the person who gave Christ up, he fumbled with that name. He could not remember how to say Judas. He was actually still in jail at the time that the writer of this newspaper article had printed it. He was still in jail awaiting their conclusion, having not completely aced the test. He goes from a place where it, his life is at stake for believing in Christ to a land who does not believe him, and yet it is told that he still had joy because he had responded to the gospel. Did his response to the gospel automatically lead to an easy life? No. It was trouble and trial for a great season before he was finally released from jail and set free. Psalm 34 is a passage that's meant a lot to me. I've preached on that. It was a passage that I had read when I was going through a hardship recently in my own life. It says in verse 17 that the righteous cry out to God and the Lord hears. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities. Note that it says that. Not one who is righteous has no adversity. But it says, one who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord is the one who rescues them, him from them all. If there is any rescue, folks, it is because of Jesus Christ. If there's any rescue in this life, it is to give him credit. And the message is not just that he loves us individually, but he wants his name proclaimed in all of the world. The righteous will experience hardship. We will go through times of trial. Christ proclaimed that. In the world, you will have troubles. 
but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The lie is that true faith is trouble-free. The fix is to put our eyes on Jesus, no matter how tall the waves, and wait until he calms the storm to stay faithful and cling to him. Three truths and a lie. That's what we see in this passage today. And I believe what Paul would encourage us is that we should be looking for those who we can stir up to love and good deeds. He returned back on that trail to those hard to reach places because he had the heart of the Father. And the question this morning is, do you? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would captivate us with your message. Father, there are indeed, still even today, amazing things that we see that have your fingerprints on them. We see you at work in the world around us. We see you consistently transforming lives. We've seen that recently in our own church. Help us not to forget the message. Help us not to forget the fact that it has to be about the gospel. It cannot be about us. It cannot be about an individual or a place or a group. It is only about Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to stay far away from that lie, that if we are truly saved, we'll be trouble-free. That's a falsehood that your enemy uses to discourage many, maybe even this morning. Help us not to expect trouble, but to faithfully follow you no matter what the day brings. You are a good God whose desire is to keep us focused on the gospel. Help us to trust you, Father. Help us to see fruit as we stay faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.